We face the risk of engaging in a transition in which we import most of the necessary equipment, which places us in danger of losing jobs and above all makes us extremely vulnerable. Hello everyone, welcome to Trade Talk, the podcast designed to help get your business growing with confidence. The recent energy crisis was a harsh reminder of our economy's dependence on energy resources, which are a key economic growth driver. Now, fossil fuels become less available and there is a need to transition to lower carbon alternatives. So isn't tomorrow's energy likely to be costlier and subject to greater uncertainty about availability? What is the outlook and how can companies adapt? To answer these questions, here are Jean-Christophe Café, COFAS Chief Economist, and Marc-Antoine Aïl-Mazega, Director of the Center for Energy and Climate at the French Institute of International Relations. Jean-Christophe, Marc-Antoine, hello. Thank you for joining us. Bonjour. Hi, Ingrid. Bonjour. Hello, Ingrid. My first question is for you, Jean-Christophe. As we know, the war in Ukraine disrupted the energy markets and especially gas supplies, sparking major concerns. Six months ago, before the winter, we were told to expect the worst. Major efforts were made across the board, and we weathered the winter fairly well in the end, I think, or so it seems. Were those fears overdone? Did we manage to avoid the worst? What is your view on the winter that we just experienced? I definitely don't think that the fears were overdone. Without doubt, there was a possibility that natural gas supplies to Europe could be interrupted. It didn't happen in the end, but that doesn't mean that the risk was not there. There were several reasons why it was averted. First, weather conditions were relatively mild or even extremely mild in Europe starting in the autumn and through much of the winter. Estimates by several organizations, which we agree with, suggest that unusually warm autumn and winter temperatures made it possible to save around 20 billion cubic meters of natural gas in Europe, or roughly 10 to 15 percent of natural gas pipes in from Russia before the war, which is extremely significant. Another factor was efficiency savings, particularly by households, as government awareness raising campaigns paid off. Production cuts in a number of energy intensive manufacturing sectors also played an important role. I'm thinking particularly of metals and glassmaking, as well as chemicals and especially petrochemicals, which are extremely heavy consumers of energy, especially natural gas. Production in these sectors declined fairly significantly, with output statistics showing very low readings over last autumn and winter for these industries in Germany, Italy and France, which resulted in gas savings. That being said, saving on gas at the cost of a sharp economic contraction is not necessarily a lasting solution. Another somewhat fortuitous factor was China's zero Covid policy, which remained in place until the end of last year, and which enabled Europe to secure its liquefied natural gas LNG supplies. China more or less vanished from the LNG market last year, as its imports fell by around 20% over the year as a whole. This cleared the way for Europe to attract LNG carriers and replenish its reserves before having to tap them during the winter period. Putting these factors together, we arrive at today's situation with European natural gas inventories at unusually high levels for the end of the winter. Fill levels are sitting at around 60% or even a little higher judging by the latest numbers, which bodes well for next winter. 
We'll come back to this uh, interesting point, of course. But before that, I'd like to ask you, Marc-Antoine, about the infrastructure needed to support LNG supplies. Um, a variety of infrastructure is required for liquefaction, regasification, and transportation, of course. Have there been big strategic changes in terms of supply or the construction of infrastructure since uh, the onset of the crisis? There have indeed, historically and uh, until the start of 2022, gas flows to Europe traveled essentially east-west through pipelines uh, from Russia. As pipeline flows from Russia were gradually and extensively shut down, we switched over several months to a, a system in which gas traveled in a west-east direction. This major and unprecedented shift was made possible because gas transmission systems, participants, organized themselves and implemented technical measures to allow flows to be reversed. For example, between France and Germany, enabling gas to move from France to Germany for the first time ever. This unique situation for Europe occurred because Germany, which is the continent's largest gas market, did not have LNG import infrastructure owing to its preferred relationship with Russia. That has now singularly changed because Germany's government, led by Minister for the Economy Robert Habeck, who is a member of the German Green Party, took emergency action by leasing several floating LNG regasification terminals, which were installed are in the process of being installed in record time, allowing Germany to import large volumes of LNG and thus access the global LNG market. Jean-Christophe, you talked about how we benefited from China's zero-COVID policy, but China's economy is now back up and running at full tilt. Another geopolitical factor um, that we're hearing a lot about right now is the political rapprochement between Russia and China. Could this pose a short-term threat to gas supplies? What can we expect in terms of the outlook for the coming months? One thing is for sure, Russia cannot send all of its natural gas to China. There is one existing gas pipeline right now, power of Siberia, and a second is almost finished but not operational yet. This means Russia has to send its gas elsewhere, either as LNG or by pipeline to countries that are still importing from Russia. Chinese demand is definitely one of the big question marks for 2024. As I said, Chinese demand virtually evaporated with last year's deep contraction. China's lifting of health restrictions paved the way for its economy to restart, which is what we are seeing and what we are forecasting at Coface. This points to a pickup in Chinese LNG imports, which are already up 15% year-on-year. However, it's a step to go from there to worrying about supply disruptions in Europe and, all being well, we will not see any problems. Having said that, we don't necessarily have control over what could happen supply-wise insofar as there could always be disruptions to liquefaction plants in the Gulf of Mexico or elsewhere in the world. In other words, uncertainties persist, but to my mind these represent risks rather than the baseline scenario for Europe's energy supply. That does not mean that the energy crisis is over. 
Far from it. Natural gas futures clearly show that prices are following their seasonal pattern, that is, they're falling markedly as winter ends and should increase over the second half of the year in the lead-up to the Northern Hemisphere's winter. My sense, however, is that in the event of physical disruptions, emerging economies will bear the brunt. In a repeat of 2022, when some countries were unable to match the prices on international natural gas markets. We talked a lot about gas, but during the energy and financial crisis of recent decades, even over the last 50 or 100 years, oil has been the top issue. So how is the oil market doing today? The oil market remains structurally tight for several reasons. The main one is underinvestment over the past decade or so, following the 2014-2015 oil crisis and the lack of a pickup in US shale oil production. Available forecasts, including our own and those of the International Energy Agency, IEA, and oil and gas producers, point to renewed stress in the second half of 2023, in an undersupplied market and a possible rebound in oil prices from current levels, which are relatively low, at around $75 per barrel for Brent. This could begin stoking inflation again starting in the summer. Marc-Antoine, do you share this view? Do you agree with um, the concern about renewed stress? Totally. Oil markets continue to play an absolutely pivotal role for the global economy and for energy systems. We tend to overlook it, but in fact we are in a situation of structural underinvestment, even as demand for oil continues to grow. We were definitely a little unsettled by the shutdown of the Chinese economy and the strain on value change, which ultimately caused the increase in demand to slacken. But demand is back on track and growing again. So we find ourselves in a situation where we are going to face a structural shortage of production and investment. But the alternatives that can bring down demand for oil, such as clean mobility solutions and reduced plastic use, are not being deployed quickly enough. This is a huge challenge, especially since Saudi Arabia and Russia, which have joined forces within the expanded OPEC group, aka OPEC+, have decided that they want a relatively high oil price to support their economies. In the case of Saudi Arabia, for the first time, the country also seems to be aiming to transform and overhaul its economy and shift towards low-carbon technologies which is great news. But for OECD countries that are importers, such as France and for European countries on the whole, this obviously presents a real challenge. Particularly because, while happily demand may be shrinking here because we have more efficient vehicles, because we are starting to use electric vehicles and so on, it is important to understand that elsewhere in the world that is still very far off. So obviously we need to keep a close watch on the situation, particularly in emerging countries, many of whose national currencies are losing ground against the dollar, and where oil accordingly plays a major role in their balance of payments and domestic economy. Upstream oil and gas investments, that is, in exploration and production, totaled around $800 billion in 2014. When prices collapsed during the 2014-2015 oil crisis, investments in oil and gas tumbled by about half. They bounced back weekly in the ensuing years, before nosediving again during the pandemic in 2020. 
The numbers for 2021-2022 also revealed a tiny rebound. Basically, we are at about the halfway point in terms of what needs to be invested in oil and gas production to keep up with demand over the next decade under a business-as-usual scenario, which would not be in full compliance, far from it in fact, with a net-zero trajectory capable of meeting the Paris Agreement. There's a major player um, on the global energy scene that we have not spoken about yet, the United States. Could the OPEC plus agreement and oil production cuts have geopolitical aims? Are we at the start of a new power struggle between OPEC plus and the United States? Marc-Antoine, what do you think? U.S. producers have long been in OPEC's firing line because they have grown and are now among the cartel's foremost rivals. The Saudis, who dominate the organization, which is headquartered in Vienna, initially pursued a strategy during the 2014-2020 period that sought to bring down oil prices, hoping that North American producers would go bust and preventing them from ever establishing themselves as serious competitors on the export market. But the strategy flopped as North American firms raised their performances and productivity. However, that strategy definitely contributed to the structural underinvestment that we are seeing today. North American production is resuming once more. Exports are surging and Europe is benefiting because we are importing more and more US crude and related products. Overall, though, the rivalry obviously remains intact. Furthermore, OPEC is furious because the United States commands vast strategic oil reserves, which it has been tapping regularly in recent months. Saudi Arabia not only expected the U.S. to stop doing this, it also thought that America had a genuine strategy to replenish its inventories. One of the effects of the U.S. refusal to do this was that Saudi Arabia spearheaded OPEC's decision to cap production increases. This will fuel the tensions that Jean-Christophe mentioned in the coming months and most likely in the second half of the year. Yeah, that's right. It's important to keep in mind that U.S. strategic reserves, which Marc-Antoine just mentioned, have shrunk by about 300 million barrels. That is what made it possible to rein in prices, notably ahead of the U.S. midterm elections. This was a decision that Joe Biden took in order to lower prices at the pump for Americans. U.S. strategic reserves are now at their lowest levels since the early 1980s. So if I understand correctly what you're saying, at best we can expect uncertainty, and at worst, both gas and oil will um, come under fairly severe pressure. Energy is obviously a major component of inflation, um, which is a hot topic right now. So does this mean that we could expect inflation to persist? Yes, there are lots of reasons to suggest that current inflation dynamics are not a passing trend, but probably something longer lasting. Energy is a key factor, but there are others, including demographics. The trend slowdown in productivity gains and the recomposition of value chains. Returning to energy, what seems clear to me today is that we are going to be paying more for it in the years ahead. This is partly due to underinvestment in our current energy sources, namely oil and gas. But we also need to invest in the energies of the future, that is, green low-carbon energies. 
Vast immense are needed. Estimates under various scenarios for reaching net zero by 2050 are more or less consistent. We're talking about investments of between three and four trillion dollars every year. Currently, about $1 trillion is invested in clean energies. In other words, we'll need to invest an additional $2.5 trillion annually on average over the next decade to keep step with demand for green energy that is consistent with a net zero scenario for the global economy. $2.5 trillion each year for 10 years makes $25 trillion, which is equivalent to the total outstanding amount of US marketable debt. So, a colossal amount of money needs to be invested in the energy system. What's more, this is happening at a time when interest rates are higher than they were ever before and, in principle, set to stay that way. For this reason, energy will be an inflation driver for the global economy in the coming years. Well, these are fascinating numbers. Yet there does not seem to be a clear political route or a guiding line, which is to say that we are seeing a widespread of position on how best to achieve a net zero economy by 2050. For instance, Germany has decided to shut down three nuclear power plants, whereas France is prioritizing nuclear. Um, Marc-Antoine, how do you explain Germany's choice? Does it make sense, given the statistics that Jean-Christophe just shared with us? We are forging ahead with the energy transition, but without a basic agreement on the technologies and trajectories to get us there. This obviously represents a huge challenge for Europe. Just as we have a single currency but no common fiscal or tax policy, we want to navigate the energy transition without agreeing on the tools and strategies to achieve it. Germany's example is a perfect illustration. Germans reached a consensual agreement, one that suited the entire political class, to phase out nuclear and replace it, initially by coal, of course, but subsequently by gas and, above all, massively by renewables. The crisis that we have been in since 2021 has not caused Germans to change their position entirely, but we are now in a situation where Europe is said to be more fragmented with on one side countries that want to grow or at least maintain nuclear's role or adopt new technologies, such as the Netherlands and Poland, and on the other, countries that continue to oppose nuclear very strongly. This could weaken Europe's ability to achieve its objectives and undermine the continent's economies. So what kind of energy mix are we heading for? What share is nuclear likely to occupy in the future mix? When thinking about an energy transition scenario, it's hard to imagine foregoing nuclear. Currently, nuclear makes up about 5% of the global primary energy mix. Most credible scenarios for reaching net zero by 2050, which is not so very far off, rely on boosting global nuclear capacity. In its decarbonization scenarios, the IEA, for example, doubles nuclear share of the global energy mix by 2050. What we know is that to achieve the energy transition, we have to use all the options and solutions available to us. That includes nuclear and renewables, such as onshore and offshore wind power, solar energy and hydropower. Efficiency gains are another avenue, and probably energy conservation measures as well. 
The question raised by the transition is how to reduce energy production from primary sources while at the same time considerably boosting electricity production. Why? Because electricity consumption is set to soar as we switch to electric solutions. So in a country like France, where nuclear has traditionally made up between 70 and 75% of the electricity mix, the challenge is to ensure that nuclear share does not slow or fall too steeply, while still being able to meet the sharp increase in electricity consumption, which we are expecting to be at a, at least 30% or so. It could be more, but that gives a, a rough idea. What does this mean? It means that since our electrical facilities are aging, and I'm speaking here about both generation and grids, especially in the nuclear segment, we have to try to extend the life of the system or partially replace it. We simply can't replace everything. And since nuclear can't do everything, we will have to double or triple our efforts, as Jean-Christophe mentioned, in renewables and grids. All of this adds up to enormous amounts of investment. Broadly speaking, we need to replace much of France's electricity system by 2050. That's huge. Of course, that also means building new nuclear power plants and extending the life of existing facilities as much as possible. But even if we do that, nuclear share of total electricity production is set to shrink. So we need renewables, grids and flexibility solutions for the electricity system in both the short term and long term. And the long term solutions do not exist yet. So we are facing a huge technological and economic challenge on that front. This question of energy supply obviously touches on uh, issues of national sovereignty, economic sustainability. It's complex, it's costly. In your view, which countries are most at risk and which have most to fear on these issues? Reiterating my earlier comments on natural gas, I believe that emerging economies are most at risk, especially those with limited or no energy resources. There are also the countries that have limited flexibility in terms of their imports, which are exposed to the risk of being rerouted. We saw this during last year's natural gas crisis as LNG carriers were redirected to Europe, missing out some countries such as Pakistan that had been expecting them, but that were unable to match prices on European markets. Some of these emerging countries are facing a build-up of problems involving not only resources, but also broad macroeconomic imbalances, external imbalances, weak currencies and low financial reserves, particularly foreign exchange reserves. They will be first in line to be affected. Many countries fall into this category across the world, in Africa, of course, but also in South Asia. Marc-Antoine, would you put any other countries on that list? Do you have something maybe you'd like to add? I would like to talk about Europe because of our high reliance on hydrocarbon imports. We are finding out that we are exposed to new vulnerabilities connected with low-carbon technologies and industrial value chains because we have failed to take proper account of these issues in recent years, while other players have made real headway. Some, such as China, have established dominant positions in areas like mining and mineral refining, in clean mobility technologies, and uh, we are discovering this now. In wind power, because as with solar, they are capable of producing on a huge scale, which unlocks scale economies that we cannot match. 
Clearly, if we fail to respond, we face the risk of engaging in a transition in which we import most of the necessary equipment, which places us in danger of losing jobs and above all makes us extremely vulnerable, exposed to being knocked off course by the slightest geopolitical or geoeconomic shock. That is exactly where we are in Europe, hence the revival of industrial policy. Ultimately, will the proposals on the table be enough? Is it all too late? These are the issues of the day. So to close on a brighter note, we saw the enormous financing requirements associated with the transition. So surely this should translate into business opportunities. With this in mind, what opportunities do you see ahead and in which sectors? Still, of course, in connection with energy and transition. Given the scale of what still needs to be done, the energy transition is going to bring a genuine revolution that will shake up the distribution of wealth and opportunities. Of course, all low-carbon power producers and distributors stand to gain, whether they be producers of photovoltaic panels, wind turbines or metal more generally. Beyond the electricity sector, the transportation sector also needs to completely reinvent itself, a process that is already underway in the car segment. Last year, electric vehicle sales accounted for 14% of vehicle sales globally, up from less than 5% before the pandemic. Construction is another sector that is set to undergo deep-seated changes, with some participants set to benefit from the push to tackle building insulation, a long-standing issue that resurfaces periodically. This is something that we have been talking about for years, if not decades, in Europe. It's an area that needs to be addressed fairly quickly if we are to achieve our goals. I believe that there are huge opportunities everywhere, but the transition from a carbon-based economy to a decarbonized one involves rates of return that remain highly disproportionate. Put another way, investing in hydrocarbons is still ultra-profitable and far more lucrative than investing in a wind farm. The challenge for regulations, carbon markets and so forth, is that we have to foster the switch so that companies and their shareholders earn a higher return are greater benefits from investing in low-carbon technologies. In theory, for example, an investment in a wind farm is probably less profitable than a gas field investment, but will give you far more stable revenue over the long run and leave you less exposed to volatility, etc. That is one factor. Another is that carbon taxation mechanisms at European level and potentially globally Together with new extra-financial reporting standards, integration of ESG issues and so on, will obviously help low-carbon technologies to become more attractive. But this shift is going to be progressive and uh, crucially fragmented. Another vital point is that if all these opportunities are to be seized, we have to adapt our labor force by training people in the skills to meet these new needs. Thank you, Marc-Antoine and Jean-Christophe, for enlightening us on these major issues for our future. Merci beaucoup, au revoir. Thank you. Au revoir, merci. Thank you. For Cofas, I'm Ingrid Labuzon. Please tune in to our next podcast. And in the meantime, head over to cofas.com for all of Cofas's country and sector risk analysis. <laughs>